This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR. The great Sarah Anderson joins us today on the program. Sarah is the managing director at the Centrifuge Syndicate Fund in Cincinnati, Ohio. Centrifuge is a limited partner in many great venture funds and focuses on bringing value to the table. Where many LPs provide capital alone, Centrifuge has a capital base that includes many of the largest corporations in the country. These relationships allow Sarah and her team to play the role of matchmaker, connecting startups with the companies they wish to sell to or partner with. Sarah is here to talk about that approach, and we also get her take on Rob Goh and Antoinette Shore's articles on the spotty performance of venture funds and how managers are measured. Here's the interview with Sarah Anderson. Sarah Anderson joins us today from Cincinnati. Sarah manages the Centrifuge Syndicate Fund, an early-stage venture fund of funds in Cincinnati, Ohio. She joined Centrifuge in March of 2013 to help set up their first fund, Prior to that, Sarah was in banking in San Francisco with J.P. Morgan and RBC, working with technology companies such as Netflix, Zynga, and EA. Centrifuge is unique in that they actively work with their corporate and Fortune 500 LPs to expose them to the right innovation at the right time. Sarah's here today to talk about that and Centrifuge's approach. Uh, Sarah, welcome to the program. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you've gotten to the position you're at today? Sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you did a good job at the intro. But um, so my background is primarily in banking, finance related. Um, And in 2012, actually, my husband, who grew up in um, Cincinnati, made the trek back. We were both out in California and San Francisco. Um made the trek back to do some work with his family. And, you know, I obviously came with him as the loving wife, but making that trek from San Francisco to Cincinnati was huge. I mean, you know, you guys made it going to Chicago too, right? Like it's just, it's a, it's a big difference, both culturally, environmentally, um, professionally. And so when I got to Cincinnati, a lot of what I did was just kind of landscaping, looking at what's here, what might be interesting and fun. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a Midwest city. And so, uh, you know, the industries were very different. Um, there was no easy shift from what I was doing in banking, but there was this really cool concept being set up called Centrifuge. And, um, the people were very young, energetic, doing something cool with big companies around innovation and around tech. And so I got involved with them and this was early days. I mean, Centrifuge was really just started in 2013 
And they were setting up their fund, like you mentioned, and it was the first fund. And the concept was really around building a tech-based economy in Cincinnati or in the Southwest Ohio region, right? Which meant a lot of different things. Um, And I think early days, you know, the fund, all of our backers, all of our investors are large corporations, um, many Fortune 500 corporations based in the Cincinnati region. And they were looking for three things primarily, right? They were looking for um, access to innovation, right? Which is something that we focus on. Um, They were also looking for more of a tech-based economy in Cincinnati. And I think a lot of Midwestern regions fall into this category where tech, you know, has really taken off in our neighboring cities. Um, But Cincinnati was kind of behind the curve. And so they wanted to figure out a way to really generate some more momentum around startups and new technologies. And part of that, you know, the corporations here recognized that they were a huge part of that, right? Um, Because they are the customers of a lot of these startups. And then the third thing that they were looking for from the fund was really a return. So there's a lot of ways to do what they were trying to do. But there's very few that actually kind of return capital to them. And so the fund was structured as a fund of funds to kind of accomplish all three of those goals. And it was just a really exciting place to be. And so, you know, here five years into it, we, you know, we're really moving into that corporate innovation cycle. And it's been a pretty exciting adventure Awesome. Was this your brainchild or were the seedlings of this uh, syndicate fund approach there when you joined uh, the team at Centrifuge? I wish I could say it was my brainchild, but no, I'm not quite that smart. (laughs) Um, It was, um, we have an organization in Cincinnati called the um, Cincinnati Business Council, the CBC. It's made up of some of the largest companies in Cincinnati. So you have, you know, P&G, Kroger, Great American Financial, Cincinnati Bell, um, Western and Southern, which is a large insurance company. And they were the ones that really drove the formation of Centrifuge um, and the fund itself and the structure of the fund as a fund of funds versus, you know, a direct fund, um, which was brilliant in so many ways. I mean, the leverage that we're able to bring from a fund of funds model versus a direct fund model um, is has been a multiplier effect. That's great. Can you talk about some of those impacts uh, the syndicate fund has had in Cincinnati and beyond? Sure. So there's two primary impacts. So first, we work really closely with our investors, right? Like I mentioned, all of our investors are large corporations. And they're large corporations who are by and large interested in um, innovation across categories, right? So, you know, we work with large insurers, right? They're not just interested in insurance technology, right? They're also interested in security. They're interested in logistics. They're interested in um, direct-to-consumer plays. So Centrifuge really focuses on making sure those investors and those LPs have access to innovation, Um, And the impact we've seen, I think in the past five years, we've made over a thousand introductions between our LPs and startups, right? Um, Which is significant. But the the hit rate 
right? And I'm sure that you've seen this from your own portfolio. The hit rate is small. Um, you know, startups working with corporations to have an actual contract in place. Um, I think we've had 97 contracts put in place. Um, and some of those are pilots. Some of those are, you know, larger contracts, customer contracts, but you know, it's a pretty small hit rate. So, you know, the impact has really been with our LPs to bring them back up to speed on that innovation trends, like what's happening in their industries, how are they being impacted, who should they know, right? A big, a big part of what we do is making sure that they're well connected into the venture community. And if, for instance, if they're trying to learn and get smart on blockchain, right, which investors should they know and be talking to, hmm. even beyond startups that they should be you know, talking to and working with. So that's one piece of the impact that we've had. I think the other major impact that we've had is with startups in the region, right? Because if you remember, the genesis of Centrifuge was to really kind of create that tech-based economy, right? And so that deals both with the corporations becoming more tech-focused, but also the startups that were in Cincinnati being able to grow and be successful. Um, and one of the things that has happened over the past five years is just the the amount of risk capital that has come back into Cincinnati. And, you know, Centrifuge had a lot to do with that. Now, it takes a village, right? So we aren't the only people that have been working for towards that. But I think in the past, let's see, 2012 was when Centrifuge was, you know, started to get formed. 2011, I think the Southwest Ohio region was able to bring in somewhere between like 15 and 20 million a year, right? In venture capital funding. Mm. If you look at 2016, that number goes up to 140 million. Whoa. Right. That's a huge jump. But, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with just, you know, VCs don't often get exposed to the Midwest, right? Especially California, New York, Boston. Of course, Chicago is a little bit of a different story, but um, there are great startups all over the country, right? But they just don't have the access to them. The startups don't have access to the VCs and the VCs don't have access to the startups, right? Sure. Um, and so for us to be able to make those connections has been really helpful and just a step change, I think, for the Cincinnati community, right? It's great. It's great. One plus one plus one equals three. Clearly, if you have sort of the right talent, you know, the right corporations um, and the capital, if you can combine all three, you know, a, a lot more innovation and a lot more value can be created. I think right here in the Midwest, I think we have all the ingredients. I think you're totally right. And guess where all the corporations are headquartered, right? <laughs> here. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, and, and one of the things that we found, because we often go to other communities and, um, you know, Centrifuge as a model has been something we've been exploring, expanding to other communities. And really the secret sauce of why Centrifuge has been so successful, I think, has a lot to do with our corporations. They know that they are you know, the key to success here in so many ways. And, and a lot of communities don't have that buy-in from the corporations really coming together as a group to say, this is the momentum we want to create. So we're really lucky. I think we're, you know, in Cincinnati, we're very unique in that we have those relationships with our corporates. It seems like, at least from my perspective, it seems like the appetite to get involved earlier with tech companies is there um, with a lot of large corporations now. 
Whereas, you know, I felt like even as soon as five years ago, um, the integration piece uh, was just totally lacking. Um, I've seen it in Chicago. I saw it when I was in in Colorado. Um, But it it just seems like that level of interaction is uh, much more significant. And even a lot of these big corporates are kind of behind uh, the activity and the incubators and um, supporting the accelerator programs as well. And so yeah. um, I don't know if yeah. clearly you're seeing that in Cincinnati as well, but uh, it's a good thing for, for everyone involved. I think so. I mean, I, you know, innovation is such a sexy word, right? A lot of corporations want to innovate. They want to be thought of as innovative, but it's hard to do. You know, I think one of the things we've found, there's really no common denominator. Um, among, you know, how corporations innovate and how they become successful at it. I think there's a lot of different ways to do that. But I agree with you. We hear about it a lot. You know, plug and play, their growth has just been off the charts. And a lot of the corporations here in the Midwest are involved in plug and play and other, you know, tech stars, other accelerators that help them have that access to innovation but I, one of the things that we see is, you know, truly being innovative, having innovation be a core competency is very different than just being involved in, you know, an accelerator or having a CVC or, um, you know, having some type of co-working space or, or, you know, different things that corporations are trying around innovation. I think it all helps, but there are, are some necessary ingredients, right? You have to have budget against desired innovation, right? For pilots, for potential um, contracts, for acquisitions, you know, things like that. You also have to have a dedicated team. And I think human capital in a lot of corporations is even more rare than money, a lot of these corporations have plenty of money to throw at innovation, but they don't have internal teams that have time or are measured on the innovation metrics, right? So it creates, you know, a desire without an actual realization, right? And that's one of the things that we see a lot with corporations and it's taken a while to work with even some of our LPs around their internal process, you know, how they're measuring uh, performance of their teams, you know, what type of money they're putting towards it and expectations. I think internal expectations is key because you're going to fail a lot. A lot of these startups aren't going to work out like you thought they were going to for a host of different reasons. And if you don't have that patience or that expectation at the outset, then your innovation strategy is going to be deemed a failure, right? And so you're going to have to start over from square one. Whereas if you know that's going to be the case, then you can keep marching forward and keep optimizing. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, clearly there's a big difference between really getting involved in the tech community uh, for a large corporate and just sponsoring an event or slapping your logo on something, um, which we we see that too. Um, So, you know, just... Just doing a co-working space and just being around interesting people is is not really a uh, um, imperative to uh, to further innovation within um, a large corporation. But you know, I'm curious why do uh, why do the corporate LPs come to you guys? Are they are they hesitant to invest directly in funds? You know, why it is why is it that they want to work with Centrifuge? 
Well, I wouldn't say centrifuge. For most of our LP, centrifuge is not their only investment, right? Typically what we see is an ecosystem approach. So they may have some money invested over here, over here, and centrifuge is kind of one outpost of maybe five or six different initiatives that they have around innovation. One of the unique aspects of centrifuge and the fund of funds is the breadth and depth that we offer around innovation. So for instance, um, you know, we work with a lot of insurance companies, um, in different verticals of insurance and they're really good at, at the core kind of insure tech innovation, right. And getting access to what's coming out of, you know, specific insure tech accelerators or, um, you know, working with specific, maybe later stage growth companies around insurance tech, but, things that they're not seeing right around the edges of that is really where centrifuge comes in and adds value. So things around machine learning and AI, things around drones, right? Those are areas where we can add significant value that they may not otherwise have had exposure to. And that's just one example of, of one industry. I mean, our LPs are, are multifaceted between, you know, uh, consumer CPG, retail, insurance, um, healthcare, you know, across all industries. And so those adjacencies a lot of times are very important to innovation. Um, and, and a lot of times can hit, especially with the speed of innovation now, can hit corporations very quickly when they didn't see it coming. And so that's one thing that Centrifuge has been pretty uh, valuable in helping them with. Is there ever a concern about the diversification side? Um, not from a return standpoint, but if you're speaking with a corporate that's a, a CPG, large CPG, and yeah. you look across your portfolio, and you know the the total uh, percentage of investments that are in you know CPG startup and tech is is a small percentage. I mean, is that is that a concern, and is that a reason why they may not invest in a in a fund of funds? Um, it's a really good question. I think with that specific example, not a concern, but, um, you could go down the path of other industries where it would be, you know, they would want a lot more exposure for instance, in like health tech. Right. Right. Um, one of the things that interestingly enough, when we're talking about the structure as a fund of funds, right. And I think this is fairly typical too, with venture portfolios, Really, what we invest in is the tip, tip, tip of the iceberg, right? So our portfolio has seven, fund one has 17 managers in it. It has about 400, I think 477 startups, right, across the world. And those are in, you know, uh, direct to, to consumer, enterprise, life sciences, um, consumer products. So it kind of across the board. But where we really add value is not just in that portfolio, right? That's 1% maybe of those funds we talk to and those companies that, that we um, have a relationship with really the value is in the network, you know, just like a VC, you guys invest in maybe 1% of the companies that you see Mm -hmm. similarly here, but we have access to a huge network of innovation in which case we can open doors, you know, for startups that are not necessarily in our portfolio, but outside of our portfolio through, you know, great investors that we just didn't have the opportunity to invest in. So while I think, you know, 
some investors may look at our portfolio and say it's way too diversified, right? Others, you know, see it as a huge benefit to have access to 10,000 or more startups, you know, across the country and across the world that they otherwise wouldn't be able to access. And our process in working with our network is fairly refined, right? We have kind of a push pull is how we look at innovation with our corporates. Um, and the poll is largely them giving us innovation briefs or telling us, hey, this is what we're really interested in right now. We need to find some solutions here. And with our investor community, we're able to reach out to those that have a specific investment thesis, right, in that category and say, hey, have you seen anything that might be a good solution here, right? Whether you've invested in it or not, if you've invested in it, that's that's awesome. That's icing on the cake. But you know, their eyes and ears are so well-tuned and well-focused that that network really creates the value in the system. Awesome. Do you find that the interaction between the uh, corporations and, and the VCs um, is more active than that of the corporations and the startups? Or, you know, how's, the, how's that balance? That is a great question. It's very interesting because... You know, we talk all the time about corporate innovation and corporations, um, you know, working with startups and startups working with corporations. But the VCs have a huge role to play, right? In fact, a lot of times when corporations, they're trying to get smart on a subject, right? We will connect them directly with VC. It doesn't make sense at that point in time for them to talk to a startup because a startup might be one point solution when they want to know about you know, if they want to make some bets, where should they make some bets and what should they try? VCs that are experts in those categories are really their best source of knowledge, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so the VCs have a lot of activity and interaction with our corporations as well, especially at the early stages. You know, you mentioned uh, insurance before. Um, does Centrifuge work with other types of financial institutions? And if so, you know, how have you seen them react to the explosion in crypto and, and other disruptive uh, fintech? Yeah, well, you know, insurance is a big vertical for us. We don't have, unfortunately, because we're a fund of funds, right? We don't have any banks um, yet, although the Volcker rule may have some changes soon. So we'll see what, what comes out of that. But I would say by and large, you know, not just crypto, um, you know, blockchain, AI, ML, they're all really trying to get smart on these areas. Um, and I think some are more progressive than others in the way that they're trying to get smart, right? Some are testing um, different systems, maybe having developing a portfolio of assets um, that they can incorporate into their own platforms. And some are kind of you know, dabbling a little bit lighter and trying to get educated, but they all realize that this is going to change their industries and trying to get smart on it quickly. So there's a lot of opportunity there. And our, our corporations admit that there's a lot of opportunity that they need to be a part of. But it, there's a big spectrum, I think, when you think about how they are working with these new technologies, um, there's a big spectrum of appetite. Interesting. Yeah, it sounds like you, to some degree you guys are playing matchmaker, whether it's, you know, between the VCs and the corporations or the startups. Um, you know, how does can you explain kind of how your interaction works on a regular basis and, and how you get involved in, 
you know, the uh, the process between your constituents and also just the, the overall innovation process? Yeah. So um, when we have an investor, right, and clearly, you know, at the outset, we, we don't take investors that are not interested in innovation, right? Because <laughs> our value add is, is minimized if they're not interested in innovation. So an investor comes in and we immediately try to assess where they are on kind of the innovation spectrum of sophistication, right? So do they already have a team in place? What have they already tried? What's worked? What hasn't, right? How good are they at working with startups? Because a corporation that has never worked with a startup before or has not done it frequently um, needs to start in a different place than a corporation who, you know, is doing new pilots every month. So we quickly assess that and we have an internal team at Centrifuge um, that adds to the human capital of the innovation teams in our corporations, right? So they're working with these corporations one-on-one to say, okay, where are you? And then once we're able to assess that, we kind of iron out some goals, right? Where do you want your innovation strategy to go? What is your current focus today? Although that changes often, more often than you would think. Um, And how are we going to get there? And then, you know, we work with them to make sure they are accessing our portfolio, accessing our network, right? The push-pull I mentioned before um, the poll I talked about, the push is us actively mining. You know, we get a lot of feedback that one, one of the more active LPs um, with the managers that we invest in because we're actively mining their portfolios to make these connections and these introductions to our corporations. Because oftentimes where innovation happens is not where a corporation says, I need X or I need Y, right? It's, it's hey, this is an exciting new technology that's on the market and you need to know about it. And that corporation then pulls it in and that's what we call the push. So, you know, it's, it's a pretty customized process depending on, on the LP, but um, we have a, a good system down that makes sure, you know, everything is accomplished within a dedicated time frame. You know, I can imagine there's, there's fund managers out there running around trying to, you know, raise capital. Um, I can relate with that a little bit. And uh, in some cases, you know, they'll take capital whatever way they can get it. But it sounds like in this case, I mean, there's some clear strategic advantage. Um, you know, you invest in fund Y and fund Y, you know, can get access to um, a lot of uh, large corporations for potential M&A and for for channel and a, a variety of other things. Um, mm-hmm. Are are you finding that, you know, the, the fund managers are seeking you guys out because of that and telling their friends or, you know, is that a significant value add for the VCs themselves or, or not? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think a lot of our managers look at us as a strategic investor more than a financial investor, even though we are a fund of funds because of our LP base. Right. And, and because of the approach we have towards innovation um, and it's a virtuous cycle. Right. And if if we invest in a manager and their underlying companies become an active client of one of our Fortune 500 LPs, right, that boosts the value of their portfolio and thereby you know, it comes all the way back up the chain. So, you know, it's something that for so many reasons, we're actively trying to make sure those connections happen. But it is a huge selling point for a lot of managers um, to have access to some of our corporations. 
That's great. You know, we've talked uh, about finance. We've talked a little bit about healthcare, touched on CPGs. Um, you know, I'm curious to hear about sort of the industry industry disruptions that you're seeing, you know, across different sectors. Um, I know that, you know, I used to be an M&A for Danaher and uh, I was scouting out early stage tech companies. And quite candidly, more often it was because they posed threats to the portfolio um, as opposed <laughs> to opportunities. <laughs> there were both. But, you know, I'm, I'm curious kind of, you know, what you've seen out there and how various corporates are reacting to potential threats and, and opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, you know, more opportunities than threats, although I guess it, an opportunity can become a threat if you don't seize the day, you know, when it's <laughs> readily it, available. Maybe it depends on the size of your P&L. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and your risk appetite. Um, you know, I think... A lot of our corporations are obviously in disrupted industries. I don't know an industry that hasn't been disrupted. And, um, you know, I think most of them tend to be one of the things I look at is the reactive innovation versus the proactive innovation. Right. And obviously, the more successful innovation um, is the proactive kind versus the reactive kind. But there's so the speed of disruption is is so fast. I think a lot of our corporations see what their competitors are doing and suddenly want to either emulate it or try to do something as um, as disruptive as they did. And one thing that would be, I think, really interesting to see is more proactive innovation where um, corporations are taking more risk and then they're they're kind of more of a trendsetter. Um, we don't see that often. And, and I think it's the more successful of the two, but, you know, specific industries that are getting disrupted quite a bit. I think, um, if you look at health and wellness, I know we talked about that, but technology as applied to health and wellness is a huge, you know, you look at telehealth, um, and telemedicine, you look at, you know, even pharma, and technology that's being implanted into drugs now, um, you know, genetic coding and recoding that's happening, which is really interesting um, and happening much faster than I think a lot of people would have predicted. Um, we see a lot, too, I think, especially in the Midwest around you've probably heard of this new sector called cloud bio. It's probably not even that. <laughs> that new anymore, but it's basically just the application of technology to our food supply, right? Into agriculture and ag tech. Um, there's a lot happening to make our food supply more sustainable and more efficient. I think that's critical looking into the future. You know, and we have a lot of industrial LPs. Um, so makers of things, right? Whether it's chemicals or, um, textiles or auto and, We've seen a lot more around uh, supply chain and direct-to-consumer models, right, in in the heavy industrials, more than I would have thought, um, and a, a huge interest in having exposure and being a part of direct-to-consumer, right? Because I think it's a big trend, especially, you know, for young people. And even if you look at um, uh, Textiles, for instance, right? Direct to consumer for textiles and having access and convenience. Groceries is another really great example of disruption. I mean, you saw what happened with Amazon and Whole Foods. Now, 
you can get your groceries in two hours, right? So that's creating a whole new market where consumers are purchasing groceries much more often. Instead of going to the grocery store once a week, you can do your daily grocery purchase, right? And they're waiting for you when you get home. So, you know, I think disruptions happening across all industries that RLPs touch, at least, and all industries that I can think of. Um, the key is staying in the forefront of that disruption. And I think that's the hard part, right? Being a proactive innovator versus a reactive innovator, because reacting is easy. If you see your competitor doing something, then, you know, trying to react to that is something I think corporations are very used to. Whereas taking a risk, being on the forefront, knowing something may not work out is much harder. It's really hard. Um, really hard for a lot of people, uh, whether it's an LP investing in a fund one or a corporation investing in a startup or a fund, uh, those are, those are difficult decisions. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend. And all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Um, Yeah. You know, I'm also curious about maybe some of the underserved areas or... You know, if if you're talking to entrepreneurs and you're curious or you're you're trying to give advice on maybe areas that they can move into some white space or um, areas where maybe entrepreneurs aren't so focused um, on, but but they should be. Um, you know, what message would you send to the to the founders out there? Well, some of the feedback that we've gotten from our you know, corporations, which is where I get a lot of my visibility on this particular subject, is just around readiness. You know, it's, it's great to have a Fortune 500 customer and to be able to go around and talk to your investors about having great, you know, a great customer portfolio. But it is hard for large corporations to onboard these startups in large part because, you know, they may not have the back end infrastructure yet that they need. They may not have the um, security certificates that they need. You know, the technology stack may be very 
unique and, and not flexible enough to work on their systems. So, you know, a lot of times that's the pushback that we get from our corporations when we're making these introductions. And it would be great for entrepreneurs before they go talk to a lot of these large corporations to understand the limitations that the corporations have. Um, because oftentimes corporations have existing and inflexible systems in place, right? Mm -hmm. The more that they can incorporate and, and, and a lot of it's just learning how to sell into the enterprise, right? One of the things that we found in, in the startups, because we work with early stage VC. So I think that's why this becomes an extra acute pain point. Um, you know, we found a lot of the startups are just not well prepared or skilled in selling into the enterprise and selling into corporations. Um, so I think that's one area that I would love to be able to provide more color to entrepreneurs on, um, and an area where entrepreneurs can get a lot better. That's great. And then, you know, I want, I also want to jump into, uh, your thoughts and sort of advice for VCs as well. Um, you know, I was reading in, in Rob Goh's recent study on fund metrics, um, he said that, uh, quote, in the early days of a fund, VCs tend to optimize for TVPI, but in the long run, DPI is king. Uh, you can't feed your family with TVPI and you can't spend IRR, end quote. Uh, <laughs> is he right? <laughs> is he right? And what do you suggest to the fund one and fund two managers out there that, you know, they've got attractive paper gains, but no distributions to pay it in. You know, the, the DPI is zero. Right, right. Yeah, we, we see that a lot. And, you know, we look at emerging managers a lot, and I have a love affair with emerging managers. I think they are hungry, ambitious. They're A lot of them are so smart and talented. And they're also looking for, you know, differentiation in a pretty saturated market. But I do tend to agree with Rob. One of the areas, um, you know, the, the long run and, and the duration of an LPs, you know, when they start looking at DPI versus TVPI is different, right? So since we're an early stage venture, we're going to have a little bit more patience than would a standard fund of funds that's doing a lot of PE, maybe a lot of growth stage venture. But really an early stage venture, fund one, fund two, okay, no distributions. Once we get into fund three, you know, you're looking at kind of nine years, six, I guess six years you would start raising fund three. Um, you would start, you would want to start seeing something, right? Because at that point, theoretically in fund one, you should, most of the bad apples should be out of the portfolio, right? And you're kind of cultivating those that you think are going to be most successful. Um, so, so around fund three, I would say we do want to see some returns, but we know, especially with emerging managers that don't have a huge track record, it's just going to take some time. But DPI, I mean, Rob is definitely right. DPI is, at least on the LPs that we work with, like other fund of funds and other institutional investors, DPI is king. And for the fund one and fund two, fund twos of the world, to the extent they can show even moderate distributions, it's huge. Is it? It's huge. It shows that managers know how to exit. Um, you know, they've been through a full cycle. Um, yeah, it's, it's a big, a big deal. 
So I, I talked a little bit with Eric Paley about this, but let's say hypothetically, I've had a couple opportunities to be taken out of an early investment, right? By a series A or series B investor that's coming in. And let's say hypothetically that multiple was five to 10 X. Um, so they offered okay. me a five to 10 X in 18 months. Um, well, you know, conventional wisdom says you're supposed to double down on your winners and you're supposed to put more money into them. Um, mm-hmm. You're not supposed to take your money out, but to show some DPI to get a win on the board, especially if it's, you know, north of five X, uh, in some cases, uh, far north of that. Um, yeah. you know, it's a tough one and I'm, you know, I love my entrepreneurs and, and I'm just saying this is hypothetical. I don't want to say that <laughs> this has happened. <laughs> wink, wink. But, um, Understood. you know, you want to support your entrepreneurs and that's what we chose to do, to do. And it's a tough one though, because getting that DPI as, as you've said, and as Rob has articulated is, is critical. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think I hate to say it's, it depends, right. But I think in large part, it does depend. I mean, you as the investor know more than anybody else, you know, other than the entrepreneur would know about what, what the prospects of that company are. I will say we have seen some of our managers who make that decision, right. To, to stay in and keep refunding, um, keep reinvesting, then, you know, they get a few more years down the road and suddenly the market drops out or, you know, things happen that they weren't expecting and the valuation goes down and they're like, ah, I should have sold. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So there's definitely two sides of the coin. I mean, you know, if, if you hold on to it and it just goes, you know, skyrockets, then you obviously you've made the right decision, but it's an educated decision on your part. I think to the extent, you know, and one of the things that I think we're going to start seeing more and more of is the acceptance of secondary sales among early stage managers. Because when you look at the market and the mega, the mega funds that are being formed, right, it's completely changing the private investment market. It's completely changing the, the um, opportunities for exit, right, within a reasonable time frame. Dropbox just IPO'd, right? They were found in 2007. So, you know, I think we are going to start seeing more and more secondaries as a means of exiting. Um, In the past, you know, secondaries have always been kind of frowned upon. You know, it means you're not sticking with your entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I do think they're going to become more mainstream. And, And in that case, you know, if you're if you're raising fund two and you have a chance to have a five to 10 multiple on a fund one company, why not take, and I don't know the situation, but you could take some off the board, leave some in, right? That's kind of hedging, hedging your bets, but you're also showing some cash distribution to your existing LPs and to prospective LPs that you know how to exit companies. But, but again, I mean, you know, as the investor, you know, so much more than we know about the companies that you're investing in. Um, I'm confident that in that hypothetical situation, you made the right decision. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. Yeah, we had Samuel Shaw on and he mentioned that uh, his rule of thumb is if it's 20x or more, he takes half off the the board. Um, I think that was it, Um, which, you know, it's a a rough guesstimation, assuming everything else is equal. But, you know, we've talked about reinvesting and doubling down on the startup side. Um, I wanted to get your take about doing the same on, on the firm side um, and investing in, in new funds 
that that a firm is is launching. Um, and and Chris Duvos was on. We were talking about persistence. Um, you know, funds' ability to continue yeah. performing after doing well. Um, and I was reading this article by Antoinette Shore of uh, MIT. Um, she did this notable study on fund returns, which showed persistence of returns from private equity funds has gone down in the last decade. Um, and she yeah. said that if LPs are vigilant, we'll start seeing persistence at the bottom. So many LPs want so much to get into PE that they're not sensitive enough to poor performance and keep reinvesting in partnerships that are not deserving. Um, yeah. You know, Sarah, what's your take on the study and her position? I love Dubose. He's like a brother from another mother. <laughs> he's amazing. Think, he's awesome. He's the best. Um, we were just tweeting at each other today. It was good. Yeah. He's, and I think he's, you know, he has a lot of really great thoughts and, and opinions. Um, and he doesn't hold back either. That guy. I know. Um, I, I think, you know, by and large, there's definitely increasing competition. I, and the persistence argument I can see in certain categories, right? One of the things I've always believed in, especially within the emerging manager market, um, you know, and even established funds, is that success begets success in venture, right? And I'm not quite as experienced in private equity or later stage. Um, to know how that may be different in competition and deal flow and deal sourcing. But I do tend to think that, you know, in venture, you do see a gravitation of very successful entrepreneurs seeking capital from investors that have had success in specific categories, right? Um, at the early stages, I think there's a lot of noise in the seed category. And I love seed. I love early stage. I love emerging managers. There are a lot of those funds, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, persistence is, is very difficult to, to argue that, that in that category, you're not going to have some separation, right? Those that, that are going to become successful and those that are probably not going to be successful in continuing to raise fund after fund. So I do think part of it is separating the signal from the noise, Right. Mm -hmm. But I think there are certain patterns that you can see where you can start to do that. Um, and persistence in venture, I'm not sure I agree with this. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe private equity is different, but I do think you're going to still have those funds that have significant success in certain verticals. Right. And you're, you're going to see some persistence among those funds in those verticals. Sarah, if we could cover any topic here on the program, what topic do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak about it? Um, well, the one topic that I've really been yeah, looking for a lot of other LP thoughts around is this mega fund phenomenon, how that's going to affect exits and liquidity, right? Because venture already has a liquidity gap and, you know, many funds, most funds, are well over their fund timeline and the extensions, right? So how how to think about these mega funds further delaying exits um, and how other LPs are hedging against that, I think it would be really interesting um, to know about. And like you just mentioned, I think, you know, how ICOs are going to affect private capital, right, and venture capital, would be interesting to learn about too. Couldn't agree more. Uh, Sarah, what investor has influenced you most and why? 
Um, well, there's been a lot of influential ones. I think probably not an investor, but um, someone who has influenced me quite a bit. One of my bosses in investment banking um, when I was at RBC, he taught me that you know work doesn't happen behind a desk or behind a computer. Work happens when you are meeting with people, developing relationships, and really you know, have your eyes and ears to the industry that you're working in. And I believe that wholeheartedly. And it's really influenced the way that, you know, I carry my career um, and hope that my team carries their career is not just sitting behind a desk, but going out and developing relationships and getting to know what's happening and what's affecting different industries and, you know, what's going on in venture and where we really need to have some involvement. So that's been pretty influential. Um, you know, I think really highly of several LPs that we work with that I think have affected the way that I think about investing in managers. Um, you had Lindell on, he's, he's fantastic. Um, and I think he's very thoughtful in the way that he thinks about emerging managers. Um, and we have a lot of the same ideologies as relates to smaller funds. Um, you know, and, and, uh, new managers coming to market. Chris DuVos has been, um, a big sounding board for me, um, and has helped me think through a lot of challenges that we've had as an LP. Um, he's also very honest, which I appreciate because, you know, it's hard to get that in this industry. Um, so yeah, I, I think, you know, there's not been one single person, but there's definitely been people that have shaped my thinking. That's great. And then just to wrap up here, what's the uh, best way for listeners to connect with you? Um, probably email or um, so they can email me, um, Sarah with an H at centrifuge.com um, or Twitter, Twitter uh, at Adams underscore Anderson uh, is also a great way to get in touch with me. Yeah, those are probably the two best ways. Awesome. Well, Sarah, this has been great fun. I hope uh, we get a chance to catch up next time you're in Chicago and thanks so much for doing it. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fantastic. I appreciate it. All right, that'll wrap up today's interview. If you enjoyed the episode or a previous one, let the guest know about it. Share your thoughts on social or shoot them an email. Let them know what particularly resonated with you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that some of the smartest folks in venture are willing to take the time and share their insights with us. If you feel the same, a compliment goes a long way. Okay, that's a wrap for today. Until next time, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks so much for listening.